0: Some of us make our living playing trumpet, while others do more talking than actual playing. No matter our background or ability, we're all fascinated with this piece of plumbing that has earned its place in the pantheon of musical legend, for better or for worse. My name is James Newcomb, and I'm glad you're here. So let's get on with the show. Hey folks, welcome to the show. I'm glad that you have pressed play on today's podcast. I'm Happy to be in your earballs once again. And today we are, have the pleasure of welcoming to the show Mr. Tony Prisk, second trumpet with the Philadelphia Orchestra. Prior to that, he was second trumpet with the Houston Symphony. So you see a pattern here. A lot of wisdom in finding something where you specialize, especially as a professional. Maybe we'll get into that a little bit in our conversation. But uh, until then, Tony, welcome, man. Great to have you. Thanks for having me. Now, you've been in the Philadelphia Orchestra for 10 years. What's it like in the Philadelphia Orchestra?
1: It was a, definitely a dream job of mine, probably from middle college. When I decided I wanted to be an orchestral drummer player, I wanted to be in a top five orchestra, in quotes, and always had the goal of playing at this level. And I, so I guess I'm living the dream, if you will. Yeah, it was great. I came here after... 11 years of playing in the Houston Symphony, which was also a great job. Playing at this level, the having this kind of orchestra to play with on a daily basis is really a treat.
0: I have limited or- orchestra experience myself. And the best orchestra I've ever played with is the North Carolina Symphony. And they're not top five, but they're pretty good. They have a it's great a string orchestra. section. And I was in a rehearsal, and this is just me, like an orchestral newbie, like a total green wet behind the ears. But I just remember the... Um, conductor just he would just move his hand and it's like he's pressing play on a cd that is just such a i don't know forgotten or just it's it's not appreciated in our culture
1: it is surprising to me it doesn't really matter who's on the podium with uh-huh. the philadelphia orchestra it always pretty much sounds like a recording maybe not in rehearsal but <laughs> performances always come through and and i my experience playing in this orchestra has been that every time i sit down and play something special happens something in the orchestra inspires you to keep playing and, and you constantly hearing your great colleagues play something fantastic or fantastical <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. uh, in, in a performance and it really literally is almost every performance that there's something that you go wow that was really good yeah.
0: that's interesting that all of your colleagues they 20 30 years ago they were in your shoes Saying, someday I'm gonna play in an orchestra like this, at this level. And here they are. Everybody has that same they understand how special it is.
1: Yeah, I would say that mostly for winds and brass. <laughs> when okay. it comes to players it might be a little different, but <laughs> no need to say more.
0: We can read between the lines. They're not listening anyway, so you can be honest. It's okay. Yeah, it's funny
1: because you know, we have of Curtis here in town, one of the best yeah. Schools for string soloists, and some of them set out to be soloists and then end up in the Philadelphia Orchestra.
0: (laughs) That's so weird to think of to think of settling for the Philadelphia Orchestra. (laughs) That's right. Wow, ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the global population.
1: Definitely, my wife is a violinist in the orchestra, and she she would definitely say that when she started school at Curtis, her aspirations weren't just to play in an orchestra, but I think it it moved in that direction when she realized that this is actually a pretty cool job and then and not everybody can be a competition winning world class soloist that can solo with with any orchestra and there's just a handful of people that leave that school that can do that right. and make a, li- a good living doing it so it's either hit the road with the string quartet or or join an orchestra and a lot of those people go in, in those two directions if they don't get their solo career
0: going. A lot to be said about that because you think about the decision to, e- to go to Curtis and you think about the time that it takes to get to that level to even get accepted into Curtis and then you have this aspiration. I can understand how someone would feel disappointed that they can't achieve, pursue that particular career and they would feel like it. But for me, it sounds absurd to me. But that's just me. It's my perspective. But I can, I think I can understand why someone would feel that way.
1: Yeah. And maybe they don't necessarily feel that way anymore because they've pivoted or they've changed their life aspirations when they realize that maybe that's not the end all be all. I think the same thing happened to me with playing principal trumpet or playing more first trumpet. In, in, in my second trumpet role, I realized how important it is to play, play that role and to play it well and to do it with the artistry that it takes to fulfill that position. And I really honed my trumpet skills to, to cater to my position. I, over the, everybody asked me, are you going to take this audition and you take that audition for principal trumpet? And I say, as much as I, I enjoy doing a little bit of that, I feel like my skill set is much more catered towards playing second and making others sound good and helping the whole section sound good. Yeah. So, it's a little bit of, I'm not saying I'm copping out by not trying, but I feel like a position I'm more suited for.
0: Do you think your personality plays into that, specializing in principal trumpet playing versus second trumpet playing?
1: I would say it does a little bit. I have to say that I guess sometimes I feel like I have a principal trumpet mentality of I have things I want to say through music, but then I have to like adjust that based on who I'm playing with. And sometimes I try to in, input a little bit of my influence. Jeff Kernok could attest to that. But just, I think that... Yeah, my personality might cater more towards just, sure. I don't know, maybe not following so much, but as being part of a cohesive whole, just being part of a a product and not necessarily leading the product. When you're young,
0: your brain isn't fully developed when you're 20 years old. And so especially trumpet players, we think the composer gave us all the cool parts. Obviously, we're the most important. As you age and you you mature, you experience, you get kicked in the behind a little bit in life and you realize maybe I'm not that great and maybe this is something that I can do and actually contribute value to the world, not playing first.
1: It might not be so much about being not feeling that yeah, less confident. Yeah, if you're young and dumb, if you will, or naive, like you you want to play first and you really want to be the shining light. You want to be the hero, if you will, and and then this kind of manifests itself at, at like music festivals and in schools where the student only wants to play first. And if they're not playing first, they're very disappointed. And if I could go back in, in time and talk to my myself back then, I'd be like, look, look at this opportunity of not playing first as learning a new role and learning how to do something out of your skill set, or to make the first player sound as good as you can, even though you wanted to be playing that part. I do remember many times where I didn't get the first part and I was like, very disappointed and i was like sitting there on second i didn't try as hard or whatever but uh, then over the years i realized there's actually a skill to this too and there's a there's a lot i can do to make to make the whole situation be better and uh, i probably slowly grew into that just like you said (laughs)
0: yeah with
1: 20 year old undeveloped brain developed into a little bit more maturity as i went along yeah i think the brain isn't
0: fully developed when you're 20 and that's why we do things that we wouldn't do when we're 40, (laughs) when we're 20. True. (laughs) Now I want to, I want to get a little bit about your own history. You gave just a little bit, went to McGill and I think you studied with John Hagstrom at one point, but give us a little backstory of when Tony got started on trumpet.
1: So I started my elementary school band program. Many people did. My twin brother and I went into the band office at my at our junior high. And they had a bunch of instruments there. This is when we were like, I think fourth grade. The band director there gave us instruments to try. And I think they gave me a clarinet and then they gave my brother a trumpet. And I was like, whatever with the clarinet. And my brother couldn't make a sound on the trumpet. And then we switched and I made a sound on the trumpet. This is how I remember it. I don't know if my brother remembers it this way or not, but I remember it being like that where I played the trumpet. And I was like, oh, you're playing trumpet and you're playing clarinet. So my brother and I Or trumpet and clarinet cornet and clarinet and then i didn't really take it all that seriously although i do have a few of my videos that my dad made of me on my youtube channel which is funny to see like a little bit of the progression of the first year or two of my playing from there, I didn't really take trumpet seriously until it wasn't until definitely until late high school. But I found I found some higher notes as I started just experimenting in junior high and the junior high jazz band realized, oh, maybe I like to play high a little bit. So I started getting into playing lead trumpet, if you will. And that's what really motivated me was just to play in big band. And I started listening to Word of Doc Saverson and Basie Band and Ellington Band stuff and Tonight Show Band. And then Harry Connick Jr. came out with that album, Blue Light, Red Light or Red Light, yes, Blue Light.
0: Yes, I remember that one.
1: Yeah. And and Maynard Ferguson and all that in the beginning of high school. And I I started listening to all that stuff. Um, And then over the years in high school, I just started playing a little bit more and my high school band director, Ross Kellen was super, super of influence on my life. And Stephen Hoffman that was there also and Greg Cunningham. These band directors were so encouraging of me growing up that I just like... Found a new family, basically our new home in the band room at the high school. I spent a lot of time there and I was also in the chorus. So I was like really involved in the music department at my high school. And then I realized I went to a couple of band camps and realized I wanted to do music full time. So I went to the University of Illinois as a music education major. I wanted to follow my band director's footsteps. And, and I went to the University of Illinois to study with Ray Sasaki. And Ray, somewhere around my the middle of my sophomore year, said, hey, you practice trumpet so much and you love playing. Why don't you give trumpet a try? And you can always go back to music education if it didn't work out for you. But he basically said, you got what it takes, kid. Why don't you give it a shot? So I didn't, at this point, I still hadn't played a lick in orchestra yet. I was in the marching band and jazz band at the University of Illinois and symphonic band. And, and so I was doing a lot of that kind of stuff. But he said, you can play any style of music, you can do whatever. So I did that. And then the next summer, I went to Bush Gardens and played in the German show at the Bush Gardens. And that's when I met a bunch of like conservatory players that were practicing excerpts all the time. And I was like, what are those? Try playing some of that stuff. And so I started learning some orchestral excerpts that summer the summer of 94 and and then i guess from there i went back to the university of illinois and took every orchestra audition i could possibly take in the area in Champaign urbana and and i got a few jobs and i got principal trumpet in the while i was playing some principal trumpet in the university of illinois orchestra with the grad students and stuff and it ended up being okay this is what i'm going to do i pivoted from playing lead and jazz band and doing that kind of stuff to like really focusing on orchestral repertoire and it was principal trumpet in the danville symphony danville and, wow yeah danville are they, um, are they in the top five <laughs> <laughs> top five of illinois maybe, maybe not <laughs> top five of
0: southeastern <laughs> illinois
1: <laughs> Yeah, middle illinois <laughs> what is the um, what is the german
0: thing that you mentioned at bush gardens they oh the german, german show is like a
1: polka band oh okay yeah the fest house in williamsburg yeah in virginia
0: yeah. Oh, that's just down the road from where I live.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, they have a German band that plays in waltzes and stuff for the for the dancers at the German Best House. So um, a bunch
0: of the uh, like young orchestral prodigies were playing polka's.
1: Yeah, not necessarily all. There were a lot of musicians. But,
0: but a, yeah, but a few were there and they that's Yeah, a, a there were a few
1: because because it, it was actually a decent paying summer job. I think it was something like $500 a week or something, which was like yes.
0: For a kid at that
1: age, yeah, yeah. maybe four hundred. I don't remember what it was, but I remember it being enough money. When my dad was like, "Wow, that's cool!" Yeah. Like in the nineties, yeah, because I had switched from playing being a music ed major, and when I switched, my dad was like, "What are you going to do? You're going to start doing drugs and getting tattoos and piercings <laughs> I and mean, whatever." I was like, no, dad. I'm just playing trumpet. It's okay." But but he was like, "Okay, you can make money." And then the next summer, I went to Aspen and studied with Ray Mace and Chris Gecker, and Lou Ranger, and and that was. um the next level of being there with a lot of people that wanted to do what i wanted to do ben wright was there matt harding from the marine band mike mergen from the marine band chris Bubols is another one i remember being there uh isaac Pulford was a canadian player john marciando of Tromba Mundi, and yeah just a bunch of really great players were there that summer and i just was eating it up and then yeah then from there was like okay who am i going to study with when I get back, because race Sasaki is look, I'm not an orchestra trumpet player. You need to go play for people that play in orchestras. So then I started playing for John Hegstrom, because I'm from the Chicago area. So I would go home. I would go play for John as much as I could. And and then I tried to, to get together as many orchestral trumpet players as I could. Paul Markella was from Champaign-Urbana. So I would take lessons with him when he was home at the school. And... Because he would practice at the school, and I would just sit out, sit outside his practice room and go. I'd be listening intently and in what he was practicing and how he was practicing. And then when I started playing for him, it became apparent to me that I really wanted to play in an orchestra full time for a living. So he was a big influence on that, just like hearing about the lifestyle and, and what how great the music was and how exciting it was to play the orchestral repertoire. Yeah, so that's like leading on up to my master's degree. Um, uh, which where, I,
0: where did you get your master's? At so McGill. I got my master's
1: at McGill, McGill. Yeah. with Paul Markello. He got me to come up there. It was it was a tough decision because I was I had a couple of good offers at other schools, but ultimately I thought going up to Montreal and being able to hear the Montreal Symphony on a regular basis and hearing Paul play in the orchestra and he had influenced me enough to like to just follow him up there. And it ended up being a good situation for me because I ended up being a little bit more of a bigger fish as opposed to maybe going to one of the other schools like CIM or Manhattan School, where it might have been like more maybe fighting for position or whatever. But I got a lot more experience when I was at McGill because I was playing a lot more first trumpet and playing and playing a lot in a lot of ensembles. Yeah, it it ended up being a pretty good experience for me. And I was also there with another really great trumpet player, Steve Manguluk. He was, he and I were always playing together, playing duets, playing on my recital and doing grass content stuff. And same thing with a a couple other people that I used to play with but but anyway there were a lot of, of good players at the school enough that we all had a really good time playing together and there's like the trombone player Seth Cuistad and Patty Evans one player and I'm forgetting a lot of people's names but, but there were a lot of really great people to play with their xylo and
0: so you get you're like on this education track I want to be like my first mentor but then you meet this Ray Sasaki and he just gives you this kick in the pants that you need yeah and he just, you just and yeah. he said man, you've got the potential. If you work hard, you can make something of yourself and then you just hit the ground running.
1: You just hit it out of the park. And for me, it was a little bit out of fear. I wanted to make sure that I could make a living playing the trumpet. So I just worked my tail off because I didn't know really which direction it was going to take me. And I wanted to make sure that whatever direction it, it took me, that it was going to put a roof over my head and put on the table it was just kind of went full steam ahead and didn't look back just mm-hmm. followed that dream so i did get the late start to things but uh, but ray really gave me those the work ethic the fundamentals the voice that you need to be a good musician it really encouraged me to find my 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 story to tell and how to how to put it through the instrument you know
0: i want to dive into that i'm jotting it down right now how do you how could you i want to explain expound on that a little bit. How can you explain to someone who has no idea, how do you tell a story with your trumpet? Forgive the ambiguity of the question and so just take your time answering it, but what do you mean by that?
1: The written notes on the page are a good guideline for for what kind of music you're making, but eventually you have to find something in those notes that tells a story. And I think you tell that story through how you spin the sound, how you how, the direction you put through the notes, the the articulation you use, like you're like you're speaking, the pace of things, the um, the you have to search deep down a little bit to feel sadness when you're playing something that you want to sound sad. It's like being a good actor. Like what do actors have to do to get themselves in the mindset of being somebody? All the things you have to do to turn that emotion on. It's similar when you're playing a musical instrument. You have to turn those emotions on. You have to turn them off. You have to turn them on. You have to change them. You have to be a good actor. And so, you have just like an actor has written words on the page and you have to turn that into something. Same thing with the music. It's just another language. So, we have to turn that, turn what's on the page into something that moves somebody in some way or or speaks to them in a certain way. It makes them either just want to dance, makes them yeah. want to cry makes them want to smile
0: you're you're understanding what the composer wants to express but at the same time you're expressing something yourself or maybe I mean,
1: you, you recognize in the music that the composer really wanted it to be a certain way and oh. especially like Mahler or yeah. or yeah. even if you want to talk trumpet Charlier. charlie wrote all this information and in his etudes say dolce it says espressivo it says proud or yeah uh theater or yeah i think
0: charlie number two one of those markings in french means throw me away think
1: uh-huh. <laughs> i don't remember
0: Just, i'm kidding i don't like number two at all
1: because that's all the auditions well, want number two i have a whole spiel about charlie two. that oh, this, tell me as long I mean, as it's I mean, in the pejorative this, yeah yeah this what it comes to charlie two is most people don't play what's on the page and don't adhere to what charlie specifically asked for specifically asked for, I, I believe it's quarter note equals 84 in the, in okay. Allegretto in the beginning, even though it's B flat minor, like it still needs to have Allegretto feel to it in the beginning. And it's not a cadenza in the beginning. He writes later in the etude in the form of, He specifically says there to take it out. Okay. This is where you can do whatever you want here. And then it's back at tempo at stringendo and if. So if you have the allegretto in the beginning, what's your tempo for the main mimoso? which almost everybody plays faster than they than they play at the beginning, yeah, you have, sorry, I'm um, from playing it. And so you have a, a, an allegretto tempo, even sure. though it's in minor An allegretto little happy, right? <laughs> a little happy, right? A little happy. A little happy. Yeah. So not too happy. Just a little happy. Right. So it should keep moving. And then you have the main Do, <laughs> So maybe more like a 78 or a 74 or something, maybe a little, it's a little slower. If, if you look at it that way, and it also says Dolce there too, so there should be a different vibrato you play with there. There should be a different sound, a different part of the story. Just same thing with the, that's a fanfare that he writes in there. And if you do it allegretto, it makes sense.
0: Yeah, so you're saying that people take too many liberties artistically.
1: In air quotes with And you can take all the liberties you want. When obviously when you're playing an etude, dude, you can do whatever you want. But if you really want to cater to what Charlier wrote and then do everything emotionally based on what he wrote on the page, then you should serve it that way, I think. You can make a lot of music even within the confines of what he wrote. As you go through that etude, you have the main then you have a stringendo, and that stringendo, I don't think should stop until the ritano, because in another etude that he wrote, I think it's six, he wrote stringendo and then non-stringendo. You know, So he was capable of doing that. And so I feel like if you do that, if you do the stringendo correctly, people wouldn't die so much playing that etude because if you get to that tempo or you get to a tempo that, that makes it more almost like a spinning wheel effect, you mm-hmm. just keeps getting faster and then it slows down. Yeah. Uh, that would It makes more sense for that etude for me and I feel like all of that's written on the page. So what you're
0: saying essentially is that the composer actually knows music and if you do what he asks you to do,
1: things will work out. That's right. And, and I think if you look at orchestral trumpet playing as that too, that's what we have to do as orchestral trumpet players is we see what's on the page, that most of the composers, especially somebody like Mahler and Strauss, were very specific about what they wanted the music to do. Or even if you want to even go to Berger or, or, they, or any of those Austrian composers, even Ravel and Debussy, they they wrote a lot of specific stuff in the music that if you do what's on the page and then you bring your acting skills Mm -hmm. to that then you're making more special music i think you know that when you recognize that the opening of Mahler 5 is a funeral march and you have to bring the emotion of what it's like to see a funeral procession come closer and closer to you and you realize that person was your best friend and there's some sort of despair or uncomfortableness when it comes to playing the peak of some of of those phrases i heard a well-known actor
0: hollywood actor and he was describing the interesting thing about taking different roles is each role brings out a different part of his personality. It's, like he's not, it's not like he's being somebody that he's not, discovering a part of his personality that he probably wouldn't have discovered, utilized if he didn't have this role. And I wonder how much of that is true for playing orchestral music.
1: It's got to be, right? And I think that the best orchestral principles especially um, are the ones that are able to play their instruments so well and so proficiently that they can play the music any way they want to. I think that's the difference between somebody that plays the music They can do it one way. Okay, this is the way I play this piece. A lot of soloists are that way or a lot of jazz players. They play with their sound. They play with their their thematic material or whatever. They play the things that cater to them. But as an orchestra player, you don't have that luxury. You have to play music that's put in front of you and you have to make something of it. And if you're that proficient (laughs) on your instrument that you can change your roles very quickly and you can bring out that stuff in your playing, I think that's what makes a really great principal
0: orchestral player. Your job is more to blend in or support, be a supporting role for the principal player. It's part of it. Yeah, Yeah, it's part of it. But I've heard old-timer orchestral players in the past, people that I've spoken to, and they say, and this is, maybe I'm misremembering what they're saying, but they said each each person would approach their work like kind of an individualistic, they would take their own artist, add their own artistry, to the music and I'm talking about like Chicago symphony. So yeah, definitely top five. Yeah. And they said it worked out and it's a little bit different from what I hear about orchestral players now, which is blend. They didn't want to blend as
1: much as they brought their own artistry and everything worked out. I think that's true. I think you should definitely still play with your sound. You should still bring something to the music. I think over the years, Obviously, the change in importance of intonation and placement and all that kind of stuff has become a little bit more, I don't know, the kind of recording industry kind of thing. Like everything's got to be perfect. So there has been a little bit more of that kind of in the emphasis in the orchestral world. And that's very clear when it comes to auditions. A little bit more or a lot more? Yeah, I don't know. When you think about it, the yeah, the audition process now is I'm, we're going through it right now with the principal trumpet audition with the Philadelphia Orchestra. That a lot of great players are auditioning, but there's a like a level of ex- expectation now in the audition process where things need to be so like I don't know, perfect is the right word. It has to be what most of the committee feels is what the Philadelphia Orchestra sound is. And it was really tough because like in the last audition, there were no, nobody got unanimous votes. Nobody got enough votes to even win the job. It was, what are we really listening for? Are we only want somebody that can play note perfect or intonation perfect or time perfect? Or are we looking for somebody that's telling a story? And I think that the story is now is that you have to do, you have to be able to show to, to show the music, to show Mahler, show Strauss, show Stravinsky, show Ravel. And then also play it with really good intonation and, and time. And I I feel because of how competitive the audition process has gotten in the last probably 30, 40 years, that there has been a little bit more of that direction of that kind of player winning the job. I do feel like you're right. Like I've heard Mark Gould talk about this a lot about playing with different sounds in the section. Those combined sounds make a really cool sounding trumpet section and that not everybody needs to sound the same. And I agree with that. I think that as a second trumpet player, I'm not trying to make the same sound. That Dave Bulger was making. I was not. I'm not trying to make the same sound that Jeff Kernell plays with. I'm trying to find a sound that that makes the whole section sound better as a whole. And that's my con. My concept is just when I sense the situation, I hear articulation, or when I hear the sound, or I hear the volume that I adjust to what I feel makes the whole trumpet section sound better. And when you have three people, four people on stage, you can only do what you can do to bring to make that as good as you can. And and yeah, my ears. Pretty good intonation wise. So, like, I try to adjust very quickly, and maybe some people don't adjust as quickly in certain sections or certain orchestras. But, and it could be interesting to hear a little bit of intonation as opposed to it always being really lined up. And, but sitting in the section, it's a lot easier to play if everybody's playing in tune with each other, that you don't feel that extra tension on your chops when there's beating going on. But yeah, so I guess it can be a little bit more sterile now than it was back in the 70s or even 50s, 60s, 70s. A little more sterile or a little <laughs> more sterile? Yeah, because considering um, if you listen, if you, all you need to do is listen to those Schulte recordings and you go, oh, yeah, know, there was a different emphasis <laughs> those days. Okay, you know? so
0: I, you understand that this is a podcast for trumpeters and there's yeah. a three people listening we say has no bearing on the course of humanity so we understand our expectations here but I hear you talking about Mahler and Strauss they didn't have the expectation of trumpet players sounding the way they do today their equipment was very different than it is today their ear training was very different they had in mind music not perfect intonation because they that it wasn't their reality
1: yeah it's true So do we not go for that just because they weren't thinking about it, they didn't have the luxury of thinking about it back then? Is it, or does it, does that, is it, is because we have a focus on playing perfectly now because we have the luxury of the career of being a musician and back in the day, people weren't career musicians. I mean, even Frank Katarabic, who I hung out with a few days ago, Frank was telling me that when he first joined the Chicago Symphony, that he was doing dance band gigs and he was playing and he was working in... His father's butcher shop and stuff it wasn't even there's a lot i guess a lot of the old timers especially people like frank who was getting their start in the 1940s and 50s like they just they weren't full-time jobs in orchestras so you would be playing a dance band gig or you would be working in a butcher shop all night before a concert all day before concert i think with the luxury of making this of this being a a career choice now and stuff you can expect more from people you can expect a higher level of music making and instrumental playing that you have a more uh, that's why we have so many people that are so proficient on their instruments now i mean you back in the day most of the people that were playing principal trumpet were the ones that really took it seriously and then the sections were filled with people that that played well but they weren't like they weren't career oriented trumpet players a lot of times and talking with these older guys like joe markov and and frank kataravik and you talk about the people that they played in sections with, so they would tell you that like, this guy was not a very good trumpet player. But they were in one of the biggest orchestras in the country because it wasn't that wasn't the way you got the job back then. They didn't have to play an audition process like you do now. Most of the people getting jobs in orchestras now have much higher proficiency on their instrument than they did back in the 1950s and 60s, and uh, probably even from the 90s. It's just getting better and better, like the schooling and the education and online content is so much higher. People from the middle of nowhere can learn how to play trumpet at a really high level. It, it keeps going like that. And thus, there's more expectations about perfection, if you will. And the problem I think we're having now is that the orchestral repertoire is so easy for some of these young kids. Like, how seriously do they take the orchestral music anymore? It's like, I could play this in and such a and such crazy solo. Oh, Mahler's easy. So, how? How seriously are they taking the music of Mahler, Strauss, and Beethoven and, and Mozart? And I would say that I'm probably a beginning of that kind of generation of like where we were just we were expected to play everything and and just learn how to play. I got to play Tomasi. I've got to play the Jolivet. I've got to be able to to, to play Brassman type music. I got to be able to play all this crazy stuff. And then I will never say that Mahler's easy. So, well, <laughs> so Mahler that generation, yes.
0: Mahler may be easy technically compared to some of the stuff that's composed today. But understanding right. Mahler and playing it correctly, and like you that's, said earlier, being the actor playing the role—that's not easy that's at all.
1: Sk- that's a skill that I feel like yeah. good that people can't forget to yeah. to include into their in their schooling.
0: And that, it, it, and you can't teach that. That can only be learned from experience, just like life. You can't certain things about yeah, being an I mean, adult that you can't learn, or you can't. Yeah, and if you
1: can't learn it from experience, you have to learn it from listening and going to hear live music. You have to do it. Yeah. You have to go. Yeah. You you have to experience it. Yeah. You have to go out. You have to listen to it live. You have to play with recordings. You have to, to emulate and imitate and you have to just, you have to do as much as you can to educate yourself without the actual physical experience of playing it. And then there's no replicating, actually playing Mahler with an orchestra. Just, no matter how much you play it in the practice room, you never replicate what it's like to sit in the back of a giant orchestra and try to play above it and play over it or, or fit into it. So, yeah, it's that's what we always have to deal with every year when we go on vacation for three weeks and then we come back to play in the orchestra again. It's like It takes everybody a little bit of time to find their way because there's no way to replicate that kind of playing at home other than just playing sometimes as loud as you can <laughs> to a brand a teacher or something. <laughs> but yeah, the experience of sitting in an orchestra or like listening to live music is definitely something that I have to always encourage my students to do. Just come hear live music as much as you can. You know, when I was in Montreal, I used to just walk from my apartment down the street to the Place des Arts and sneak into the second half of the concert like pretty much every night I could. And, and that was huge for my orchestral concept. So you're
0: your OJT on the job training. Yeah, exactly right. It's like a unofficial academic careers, that instruction that you're not going to get at the conservatory.
1: Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, yeah, there's no replicating that. It's just, you just have to go have to seek it out. You have to love it so much you want to hear it all the time. That's, par- that's probably what I would suggest to my, I guess I was doing it, but to somebody else that's there. In starting, they really decided they want a career in music. So what kind of music do you want to play? What music What music moves you? And go listen to that as much as you can. Listen to the good stuff. Listen to the bad stuff. Listen to everything. You're going to get something out of, from listening to any of it. I don't want to sound like that. I do want to sound like that. I, or I do like that, but I don't like this. And you discover your style that way. And And then maybe... Like me, I used to only go to jazz band concerts or go to jazz show showcase. Like when I was in Chicago, I used to go to the jazz showcase all the time. I heard so many great players, and I really wanted to do that. And then when I started going to the sh- Chicago Symphony all the time, I was like, No, I really want to do that because it was just hearing the live music just made me pivot to a different way. But if you throw yourself in a bunch of different musical situations, then you will, then you might actually find your niche that way.
0: Speaking of finding our niche, that's perfect segue to my next question or topic because you've already talked a little bit about the transition from the ego wanting to be in charge wanting to be the superstar and then you realize there is a lot of value in playing these parts marked second trumpet i'd like to know a little bit from your perspective what was it like to embrace well like the was it a challenge at first to put your ego aside and say i have to do this but what point did you see there's a lot of value that I can offer with specializing in this.
1: I'd say that the reason why I went that route was more out of necessity. I won the job in the Houston Symphony as utility fourth trumpet. And this is after being at New World for four years. And I didn't really do or take second trumpet as seriously as I probably should have while I was at the New World Symphony. Because I was taking a lot of associate principal trumpet auditions. I didn't really want to play principal. So i knew how what the skill set was for that and the personality need but i do think first every once in a while so i thought oh associate principal would be really good for me so i was taking a lot of associate principal auditions and then it's my fourth year new world and it was my last year there so i was like oh okay um i'm just taking every audition that was coming up and i didn't know anything about houston i just i never been there i never been to texas really so i auditioned at the houston symphony and i won this job as a utility fourth trumpet but it was really they didn't have it the second trumpet player retired so they didn't really have a second trumpet player. So after my first couple of years there, I transitioned to being second trumpet. But in that, in those years there, I started realizing I did not have the skills to play second trumpet. And I was matching guys that played much louder than than I was used to playing in a much different equipment that I was used to playing. I was playing a Bach trumpet and they were playing Callot C trumpets. It was like, it was, a very strange mix and and it pretty much was a challenge for me for the first few years I was there and it, re, it really did have to relearn some of my fundamentals I had a pivot again with like how I approached playing loud which also made me have to re, reassess the way I play high and and it, all that changed in my first few years probably the first five years I was in the Houston Symphony It was a very long transition that was a lot of experimentation a lot of a lot of tough moments for me in my career like points where i thought okay this is it i'm not doing this anymore but but i've at some point said okay i'm going to give it this i'm just going to go for it and just really try to fix these problems and i i think i pretty much did that although you always have to keep on top of stuff you can't start working but but yeah, it, I transitioned to a place where I could do the job more efficiently. I was enjoying the job more. I felt like I was making the music that I thought I could make and finally got to a place where my career was grooving. And then as soon as that happened, when I started feeling like it was a good place, I was still taking auditions. And, and then the second trumpet job, Philadelphia Orchestra opened up and the list was a lot of second trumpet excerpts that I knew very well. and And it just seemed like a logical progression. Although coming up here from from Houston was a huge transition for me because I had this life in Houston that I really loved and was really was going along, iron and all cylinders, and then got here and then I just sold my house, packed up all my stuff, and moved up to Philadelphia and started a whole basically another career up here, starting basically starting from scratch again with my personal life and then and as my trumpet career was still gaining speed, which was good. So this was been, this has been great for me up here. The job has been fantastic. And then meeting my wife in the orchestra, and, which is, that's, so I'm very happy.
0: And a baby on the way. Congratulations. The baby's coming
1: in March, which is wonderful. Very much looking forward to that. Yeah. But yeah, second trumpet ended up being more out of necessity. I had a job playing second trumpet. I needed to learn how to do it. And then when I decided that's really what I wanted to do, because I, I was happy being in the Houston Symphony for as long as I was going to be there. If I never won another job and I was in the Houston Symphony, I was like, oh, I had a great job in the Houston Symphony. It was really a really great place to be. There were a lot of great colleagues there and a lot of great musicians, and it was a really good orchestra. It is a really good orchestra. I learned so much from the people in that orchestra playing in that brass section. Dave Kirk, the super player, just, I learned so much from that guy about music and about grooving, the trombone section there, Alan Barnhill, Brad White. And, oh, wow, I just drew a blank on his name. I <laughs> the picture of him right there. Anyway, the whole low brass section, Mark Hughes, principal trumpet, when he got there, we grooved and we got together and played a lot. And he showed me what he liked as a second trumpet, what he wanted a second trumpet player to do for him. And that, that showed me, that gave me a lot of the skills that I needed to make us sound good together. And and that I, I thank him for that. And then I played a lot for John Higstrom over the years and his sound concept and and his more of his concepts of musicianship helped me be a better second trumpet player too. Anyway, that's how Second Trumpet became more of a thing for me because that was my job and I wanted to do my job the best I possibly could. And the same thing here, that I'm Second Trumpet here. It's just, it's been the same thing. It was a dream of mine to play with Dave Bilger. When I got the job here, I was like, wow, this is going to be really great. And then he retired. So now we're looking for the next, the next person to lead the Philadelphia Orchestra Brass Section. We'll see. Hopefully we'll get somebody that we can have another 15, 20 years
0: of great playing. I don't mean to be too personal, but do you ever think I want to be the man? in Philadelphia?
1: Every once in a while, when somebody puts that bug in my ear, (laughs) I think, do I really want to do the job? No. It's usually pretty quick. Mm, No. It's sometimes I think, oh, it would be really great to do that and to get my musical voice out there a little bit more regularly, but it's a different lifestyle. It really does a different mentality sometimes. And I think I maybe wear my emotions too much on my sleeve. I think it might be a little too stressful for me. Although I can see everybody says you just have to do it. Once you start doing it, you get into it. And, you, and I just don't know if I want to, I'm not trying to have any cop-outs or anything like that or being... I get what you're saying. And
0: what you're saying right now reminds me of, uh, I, I had Ken Larson on the show a couple of weeks ago. And he said something along the lines of, don't be a professional musician unless you have to do it. And I paused when he said that because I didn't know what to make of that. But then I realized I have to do this. That's the only reason that you should do it. And then. You don't have to do that. I don't have that. Yeah, I don't have so that. There's I no shame. To the so Tony Prisk is settling for second trumpet in, <laughs> <laughs> in the Philadelphia Orchestra. Yeah. If uh, you didn't get all that, get this. He's settling. Yeah. <laughs> totally joking.
1: Absolutely joking. It's funny because a, a, my a colleague of mine, Matt Vaughn, and I spoke about it recently. Like how much t- with taking a principal trumpet audition just be because you went and proved yourself you could do it. Or how much of is it, how much the reason why you don't want to do it is because you're afraid of actually getting it and doing it. It's a double-edged sword, really. When I talk to my principal trumpet playing friends, they say, well, it'll take 20 years off your career or your hair will go gray a lot sooner. I'm happy with it, But I feel like, yeah, you're right. I don't have to do it. I just don't, you don't really, I don't feel the need to do it. But, but there's always like that little bit, I don't know if it's good tone. or- Tony, it's <laughs> second trumpet Tony or first trumpet Tony, you going to it. And it's, nah, don't do it. So yeah, but I'm looking forward to, to going through the process and finding and hearing great playing and great players and, and, and ho- hopefully in the next audition, we'll find somebody.
0: I sadly have to get going for my next call in just a couple of minutes, but we just have one. I just have one final question for you that I ask all my guests and you've already touched on it a little bit in our time together, but if you were to go back to... Let's say you're gonna meet Tony Prisk, who's twenty years old, and he's looking he his trumpet career is right in front of him. What is one thing that you would share with this person?
1: Always keep your mind and your ears open. All the criticism and all the advice to sink in and let your body decipher, let your mind decipher more I don't know, by, by osmosis or some filtering process of what What really will help you in a positive way to not allow the negativity to ever get into your system and to just stay positive and forward thinking and be smart about how you practice smarter, not harder or practice hard, but smart. And I'd say that there was too many times where I walked where I sat down in the practice room and I wasn't as focused or as as organized as I should have been. And I probably wouldn't have gotten a lot farther. And just to be a little bit more mindful of positivity and open-mindedness
0: oh ah, wonderful tony you've shared a lot of wisdom a lot of just really good stuff especially on charlie number two <laughs> it's the aptly named number two from Charlier. Uh, but i appreciate that you've just given homage to so many people who have played such a, an important role in your own development as a person and as oh a and musician. i miss so many we have a limited amount of time yeah but i love how you're just give credit where credit is due And that's just great. It's it's just a pleasure to get to know you. Sometimes I, I feel lucky for people who are a fly on the wall in these conversations. And here I am right in the middle of it, talking with people who have been there and done great things. And I really appreciate you being on the show. I appreciate you having me. It's really great talking to you. That's a wrap for this edition of Trumpet Dynamics, telling the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. As a reminder, if you enjoy this show and want to help support it, the best way to do so is to subscribe to my daily email newsletter. I try to keep things fun yet informational, infotaining, as they say, and I think you're going to enjoy receiving them. Visit TrumpetDynamics.com to subscribe to the newsletter and catch up on previously released episodes of the podcast. Thank you again for pressing play on today's episode, and we'll be in your earballs soon.